You're listening to the Redemption Church Podcast with Pastor Daniel Williams as we go through a series called God Redeems, a study through the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 27, if you have a Bible, open it there, but also I'm going to give you two other places. This is bonus. This is great content, okay? We got a lot of study to do. The text that we're going at is not a whole chapter, it's just this one section, the bronze altar, but I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 8, Proverbs chapter 8, and Leviticus chapter 4. We're going to get there this morning, this evening, or whatever time it is when you're watching this online. See how I can recover? That's not, it's totally nighttime right now. Um, We're working through our study of the tabernacle. Uh, We're trying to grasp the significance of this section of Scripture that God has given us. And uh, I've just been having a blast teaching. Thanks so much for these long Bible studies to be able to walk through this text with me. Uh, We've been working from the inside out. This is how God works. He's giving instruction to Moses of how he's building the tabernacle. He started with the most holy place or the holy of holies and the Ark of the Covenant. It would go on from the most holy place to the holy place, which is this tent of meeting, and uh, that would include the lampstand, the table of bread of presence, and the altar of incense. Uh, From there, we actually even studied last week, Exodus chapter 26, the structures of this system, the curtains, the coverings, even the bases, uh, the good old pipe and drape of the Old Testament found in Exodus 26, and tonight we're going to go and continue to study Exodus 27, and look at the courtyard. Look at the courtyard, look at its furnishings. And um, these studies have been detailed, they've been incredible, and um, we haven't even covered everything. There was even, I was telling Sue, reading this book, where she has the same book as I, and I was like, yeah, and they made this point, they made that point, I couldn't even get to it because of this, this, and this. But we're doing pretty good. And I want to encourage you as we're Coming to these studies, and as we have slides on the screen and things like that, um, I would encourage you to bring a notebook, a piece of paper, um, a phone, and make some notes, because it can get a lot. There is a lot of stuff in here, and so um, I wanted to start, by way of introduction, Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8 is is an Old Testament book. It's a wisdom genre. It's full of wisdom on how to walk this life in God's ways. And um, it gives us just a little context. And a first point I sort of want to open our eyes to is we look at sort of the system of sacrifice and sort of how the Israelites were to worship through the altar, uh, through this bronze altar. Uh, Proverbs chapter 8, this is wisdom sort of speaking. Uh, it says, the Lord, uh, verse 22, we'll read 22 through 31. I have the words on the screen, but you have your Bibles open. It says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work. He possessed me. He used me. He found me in the first acts of, of His acts of old. Ages ago, I set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. When there was no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields and the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. And when he drew a circle on the face of the deep, and when he made firm the skies above, and when he established the foundations of the deep, and when he assigned to the sea its limits, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, and then I was beside him like a master workman, I was daily his delight. 
rejoicing before Him always, rejoicing in His inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. First point in the way of introduction and getting into this section is I just want you to understand how wise God is. God is so wise. He's all-powerful, and we often talk about that, but He, in His wisdom, is giving Moses instructions to not only blow that generation's mind of meeting with God, but to show us patterns of things that were, things that are, and things to come. This text says the Lord possessed wisdom to make the heavens and the earth, but also as He instructed and gave us Scripture and instructed Moses to eradicate the tabernacle, Because remember, the tabernacle was supposed to point us to Jesus. The writer of Hebrews makes it very clear. This was one of the purposes of why it's so detailed, so um, into Scripture of all these things. God keeps on saying, write this down, write this down, write this down. God is giving him instruction. Because the tabernacle is also known, or you could translate it into meaning, is the dwelling place of God. And it's supposed to point us to heavenly things. The eternal dwelling place of God and Jesus himself. Now we've mentioned this verse before, but I want this perspective in your mind as we go into this next chapter. Hebrews 8.5 says this, They, speaking of this instruction that we're going to study, and we have been studying of the tabernacle, they serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to that pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. The Bible says in Colossians 2.17 that all of the law, all of the pattern, all these different things in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing or a taste or something to come that points us to Christ. But I want you to notice about the tabernacle specifically, this text says it's not just to Jesus, but it's also to heaven heavenly things. And yes, Jesus is heavenly thing because he came down from heaven, humbled himself, became a man for you and I. One example of this is in Revelation 21. We were talking about this in community group uh, this last uh, Wednesday and um, Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4 are some of the most beautiful pictures and words of our future. John the Apostle John, this disciple of love that knew Jesus and God was giving him a vision about our future, heaven. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God. That dwelling place is the same exact word translated. And the NASB actually says, Behold, the tabernacle of God. The tabernacle of God or the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be uh, with them as their God. For he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, any more, for the former things have passed away. God in His wisdom created everything that we know, the earth. And we know these earthly things, heaven and earth will pass away, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth where God will dwell a tabernacle. And this pattern 
Our future is found in the Old Testament, what we're studying. How does God do this? God is great. He is wise. And he's able to not only speak and to have a specific purpose here, but also to give beautiful illustrations of even our future and people that would worship him in generations to come. You see, the tabernacle points us to Jesus and heaven. And in Revelation 21, there's also other cues of this new heaven and new earth. In verses 15 and 16, it describes this new Jerusalem, the heavenly place of God, as a cube, just like the most holy place that we studied. Or in verses 23, it describes this city not needing a light, like the most holy place. You know, the lampstand was not in the holy of holies. It was in the holy place. The veil was super thick. There was no light, but the presence of God lit up that area, just like the presence of God will light up heaven. There are all these amazing parallels and wisdom that point us to Jesus in heaven. But I want you to understand this as well. The people of Israel at this time, as they're getting this instruction from Moses saying, God told me this, they would have had no idea and not had those scriptures. This is thousands of years before Jesus came. And it's thousands of years after he's been alive and rose again, and we are still waiting for a glorious new heavens and new earth. And yet, Jesus in his wisdom can speak of it. And they just had to obey it. They fully didn't comprehend, even though there was blessing, and they said, well, if we do it, then we're going to get the dwelling place of God, and it's going to be like this. But they didn't understand the complete significance of what we are studying right now. And yet we're told they were to obey. They were to worship. They were to follow. I say this because oftentimes as Christians, we get Scripture and we get a command. and It's practical and it's good for us, but we don't know the significance of our holiness, of our righteousness, of walking and obeying God, following and worshiping Him. It reminded me of that other verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You may know it and memorized it. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding and in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Listen, we can trust God. We can trust God because he is wise, he's a genius, he's incredible, he knows what he's doing and when he gives us instructions like his word, we can follow and worship and glory in his wisdom even when we don't understand the great significance of just forgiving someone like the Bible says loving our enemy, giving an attitude of praise and thanksgiving. It it may make your day a little bit better, but what about the heavenly things God wants to do in you and I's life? Like, we need to understand and we need to see the big picture of the tabernacle as Moses is receiving this, there are certain patterns. I mean, we've been studying about curtains and seeing Christ. It's pretty incredible. Let's remember our God is sovereign. He can instruct us exactly as he fits, and we don't need to understand all of the instruction. We just need to understand who he is, and he's good, and he proves himself over and over and over again. That's just what I'm seeing as I'm looking at this, thinking, oh my gosh, this points to this, and this points to this, and this points to this. Now, this is important for our study today because what we're going to study is really a part one of the outer court And it's the bronze altar. And it's not just this altar that has significance, but how to worship God and the the significance of what they were instructed to do with this altar. 
This is why I couldn't just jump through the whole chapter. I had to pause and give you a little book study. Now, if you are taking notes, I want you to see the whole outline of this chapter. It's the court of the tabernacle, Exodus chapter 27, and it's sort of broken down, I see, in like three ways. First, tonight we'll study the bronze altar, verses 1 through 8. And this really focuses on God's presence through sacrifice. Finding God's presence through sacrifice. Then next week, and we'll cover these next two sections, verses 9 through 19, God's presence guarded with the outer court and the linen surrounding that. And then oil for the lamp, verses 20 through 21, God's presence with us. It was guarded, but yet it's with us. And so today, we're going to just focus on this bronze altar and how through sacrifice we're able to enter into God's presence And I just pray that you see and are amazed and in awe of God's wisdom and how incredible he is uh, possessing wisdom to not only make the new heavens and new earth, our heavens and and earth, but even working in our lives. We can trust him in that. So I know that we watched a video, but for recording's sake and to actually open our Bibles and read it, let's just hear the words from the Lord, verses 1 through 8 of this bronze altar and Moses getting this instruction. It says this, you shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. Now remember, one cubic equals about 1.5 feet. We'll get into the math later. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay all of it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans, and you shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make uh, uh, make a grating of a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four rings or bronze rings as its four corners, and you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar, and you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze, uh, and the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the uh, two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. Let's pray and let's ask the Spirit to continue to teach us. Jesus, we need you to be lifted high in this place and we need help from your Spirit. I pray you give me clarity. Pray, the Lord, that our hearts will be prepared. Uh, Lord, that you would prove yourself over and over again, not just of how uh, beautiful you are and how wise you are, but Lord, how you use even your power and this wisdom and, and love just to serve us. You're a great servant. And so may I be a good servant to your church now to uh, exposit and expose the great truths and the eternal things of Scripture as you've given me study this week. I thank you, God, for meeting me in this place. And I pray, Lord, that this place would be special for people right now as they listen and hear and watch this message. Uh, may you be glorified and lifted high. It's in your name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Let's start with a quote because this is significant. Uh, the Rosen publisher uh, says this The idea of sacrifice is at the core of the Christian faith. The idea of sacrifice is at the core of the Christian faith, and the sacrifice of Jesus is one of the central truths of the gospel. However, this important element of the Christian faith finds its origins and explanations in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And that is what we just read. I know it's sort of like a a long 
chapter with more details and cubics and, and wood and bronze and all this different stuff. But what God is doing through this bronze altar in this text is setting up in his tabernacle a desired way to actually meet with him through sacrifice, to dwell with him, to know him. Now, let me give you another picture because pictures and videos I do think help. As I sort of explain it, you can look at it. Because Exodus 27 covers the court of the tabernacle and its furnishings. There was not only the bronze altar, there was the bronze laver or basin. And these, this outer courtyard was 50 cubics by 100 cubics. This is 75 feet by 150 feet because remember we're doing the math, 1.5 feet to 1 cubic. So every time you see a cubic, you just calculate it. Uh, and the fence was comp- comprised of 20 bronze posts on the longer side, the north and south side. West and east side, they had 10 posts. Even the direction and way this stuff faces is significant. We'll look at that next week. This post had fire, or had uh, uh, sort of from the desert. It was very sparkly. It was of fine linen. And uh, we know from the text in this chapter that it was five cubics high. So the wall, the outer courtyard wall, was higher than me. I'm a pretty tall guy, but seven and a half feet is usually taller than most humans. So you couldn't just see over this place. If you try to look over the place, you would see silver, a picture of redemption. It had bronze bases. And everything on the outside in this courtyard had the significance significance of bronze. Uh, The east side of the courtyard, well, it had a gate, four posts, and sort of like a screen light embroidery, colors of gold and uh, purple and blue and red, uh, like scarlet red, we read in the text. And this was the only way that you would get in and out of the courtyard courtyard and get to the tabernacle. It would be a door that they would enter in, like Jesus alluded to and we talked about from John chapter 10, how he is the door to get to the presence of God. And we're going to study the significance of this, but I want you to notice when we think about the courtyard and the tabernacle, this was all a part of the tabernacle. We've been defining the holy place and the most holy place as sort of the tent of meeting because that's also known as the tabernacle. It gets confusing, I know. But seeing a picture, not that confusing. You go through a barrier, you see beauty, you go and they're inviting, and the first thing that you would see as a worshiper going to the tabernacle was this bronze altar that was just instructed by God to Moses on how to build. Now, let's get the picture of the bronze altar up here, and you'll see the significance in just sort of working. Because, again, it's high. It's uh, also known in Scripture as the altar of burnt offerings or the brazen altar. Uh, It was the large altar that stood in the center of the courtyard. Now, this text says that this altar was five cubits long. It was five cubits wide, and it was four and a half feet high. For all those short people or priests, they had to get up on the ledge and actually work the the thing. But for most of us, you could see over it, and it would be about yay high, four and a half feet. Again, we see this acacia wood, uh, but it was also not covered in gold. It was covered in bronze. As we're working through this study, we're seeing the significance of what metals look like. You remember that wood is a picture of humanity, Jesus' humanity, how he became uh, flesh. And in the tabernacle, inside of the tent of meeting, the holy place and the most holy place, this wood was filled with gold. And it was beautiful. And it was an invitation. It talked about how Jesus' deity was pure and refined and holy. And uh, it emphasizes Jesus' deity and humanity. 
Last week, we studied silver and how that signifies redemption. Those were the bases of the tabernacle that you couldn't get into God's presence without redemption, without this sacrifice and understanding all of these significant things. Now, bronze, we talked about a little bit because the clasp of the coverings were bronze. Not in the inside, but on the outside. Inside, they were gold. Outside, they were bronze. Bronze significance and signifies judgment. This is why um, it was all in the outside courtyard, because this was actually the purpose of Jesus, uh, to come to seek and save the lost. And he would do this by taking on the sins of the world, being judged for you and I. 1 John 2.2 says, not only you and I, but for the whole world, the wrath of God was placed on Jesus on wood, on a cross, and it's actually God dealing with sin in his beautiful plan that he's setting up right now of how to enter into his presence. Everything in the courtyard was covered with bronze, had a significant of judgment, of price for sin, of the seriousness of sin, of dealing with the worshiper as a sinner to enter into a holy place of purity where God was and his presence. How did they do that? You first go through the door or the courtyard and you see the altar. That's what you see. That's how you, you can't get to the presence of God without looking and going through the altar. Now, there were tools for this altar, as the picture sees. Uh, there's these tools of the altar, and they were all covered in bronze. They have some significance. We don't need to get in a rabbit trail and go really, really deep. You could do that on your own, but there are not only just the altar, but there were tools for the altar. Just like how there's certain things, and in, in, in we look at Jesus' life of how he did ministry and how judgment was, was dealt with. One, there were shovels. This was to remove the ash from the altar because there was fire going on. The Bible says that fire was lit by God himself. And so part of the priest's responsibility was to keep this fire going, to light it up. They would use these shovels to remove the ash. There were pitchforks. This would be to place and to move the sacrifices and these animals from the altar and to the altar. They would throw animal sacrifices on this altar. They would also take their pitchfork and move some of these animals off to actually eat, to participate. We'll look at that. There were censers. Uh, These were to carry the hot coals to another altar. Now, this is a little confusing, but don't, don't get it twisted. Okay, This is the bronze altar on the outer courtyard inside the holy place. Guess what? There was another altar, the altar of incense. Okay? We know that that is a beautiful picture of our prayers, of some cool things happening there, but they would actually carry some of the hot coals, so they would need a tool to carry that hot presence into the, the holy place. And then lastly, there was the sprinkling bowls. And I say sprinkling bowls, gets a little graphic. Hopefully, I don't faint but they would actually slit animals' throats. And as they did that by the altar, they would have this bowl. The priest would usually hold the bowl up and get the blood from the courtyard. And he would sprinkle that on the altar and on the altar of incense and even on the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. These were the tools the priests used that we'll get into as we look at the garments of the priest, the next chapter, and then what they actually did and how they're significant. Man, aren't you glad you're taking notes? I just feel like I'm giving you a history lesson. You're welcome, okay? All of these tools, they're in the Bible, but it's just I'm just trying to systematically give you a framework for where we're headed. All these tools were covered in what? Bronze. 
because they dealt with judgment. Even the rings and the poles, because this was a portable system, because God goes wherever his people are, and he makes a way for that. For you and I, he gives us his spirit, removes the sin that we have, places his spirit within us. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. Right then and there, sin was not permanently removed through these sacrifices. God was dwelling with the people, and they had to pack up all this different stuff. And so they actually had poles, and it was covered in bronze. And you stuck it through the rings, and you carried the altar because it was one piece. It was manageable. The Levites, the priests, they would do this. Now, this doesn't just remind us of Jesus and his great work, but how he accomplished his great work. How he accomplished his great work of our freedom and forgiveness on the cross. It was wood covered in bronze. When we think of wood covered in gold, we think of Jesus' deity. But what do you think about wood covered in bronze? The flesh, Jesus becoming man and then dying for our sins. Judgment on him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, became sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God. Jesus bore our wrath on the cross so that we would have his blessing and purified and, and be holy. This Jesus lifting high and lifted up and Dying for us was prophesied in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament. And it was actually a picture where Jesus prophesied and said that he would go to the cross and die and rise again. But when you look at the New Testament, like Galatians 3.13, it actually says that Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us on a tree. Judgment was always placed on this tree. It was this curse. And Jesus came to die for you and me. This is where we get the idea of substitutionary atonement or sacrificial system, a substitute that someone would die for another. No greater love is this, that one laid down his life for another or his friend. And Jesus wants to give us this picture, not just on the cross of his love, but right here is God is setting up, this is how you get to my presence. I want to show you something significant. Look to the altar Look at how God told the people to use it, to worship through the altar to get to God. Now, in order to go really deep, we're going to have to do a little bit of work in Leviticus. You're welcome. I told you to turn there, Leviticus chapter 4. Because we're not just studying what the altar is, but why, how did they use the altar? You see, Leviticus is one of those boring books where you get a whole bunch of this blah, blah, like what does it even make sense? But if you start looking at it, the reason why Leviticus is so important because it actually shows the people how to worship. How to worship. You remember they were slaves? There was false gods and deities and God's like, I'm going to make everyone know that I'm the real God, the real deal, and this is how I'm going to now instruct you to worship. This is the instruction of the actual altar, but God says, listen, I'm going to show you how to worship me, what to do, and how to do it. It's not just that we worship a true and living God. There's actually a way that we worship him, and he actually tells us what to do. So I had to do a quick read of Leviticus 1 through 7 just for you this week. You're welcome again. We're going to go into the significance of Leviticus because I think it gives us good insight of what took place at the altar. People were giving offerings unto the Lord and to worship. Now, one handout, uh, I'll give you sort of a quote and a sort of framework, and then I'll just explain story-wise what happened. 
one handout in the handout we actually gave you. And we found out a few more of these. This is a, a sort of a, a long, I don't know. I really love it. It's like a picture. Gives you symbols, a whole bunch of scripture. You can study it. We have seven more. I ordered a few more. They're coming in the mail. But on our connection table, you can grab one of these. They're free. It's just a pamphlet. And it gives you all these pictures and the map and the layout and even the tribes of where they are all at. Um, I was talking to someone earlier. They're like, honestly, I've seen this. There was no significant. But as we've been studying it, it's like, this is incredible, right? And so if you don't have one of these, uh, feel free to grab one of these uh, at the connection uh, table. They're free. They're our gift to you. So you can dive deeper into Scripture. And on their big form, because this is just a small pamphlet of a larger book that I have and I read, um, this quote really stood out to me thinking of, the sacrificial system, substitutionary atonement, the altar, Leviticus. Uh, the quote goes like this, God wanted to dwell among his people. So how does a holy God dwell among sinful people? First, God required the people to offer a sacrifice for their sins. God told Adam and Eve that the result of their sin was death. Remember in Genesis. God, however, had mercy on humankind and provided them a way to temporarily cover their sin. Instead of immediately requiring their own blood, which would be death, God allowed the blood of an animal to atone or to take away sin, making it possible for the worshipers to enter into God's presence. Now, I want to say that because as I tell you this story and I talk through these things, it can get a little gross and you can be like, wow, why was there a bowl for blood and people and, and, and animals dying all over the place and all the significance? It's important for us to understand. You understand that when sin entered into humanity through Adam and Eve, there was a lot of guilt and shame and they realized the significance of the weight of their sin. And God in his mercy and his love covered them. And the text says in Genesis 3.21, in the garden, God covered them with animal skin, meaning an animal had to die even then and that sacrifice was made. Because blood had to be shed, life had to be given for sin because sin produces death. Now in Leviticus 17, 11, I have this here on the screen. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for life. This is why if you continue to read Genesis, even before the tabernacle, Genesis chapter 9, verses 3 through 6, God actually prohibits eating or drinking the blood of animals. Why? Because blood is, uh, because uh, life uh, in the flesh is in the blood. If you have no blood, you cannot survive, you cannot live. And so the blood of animals had a purpose in this word called atonement. I think in our English language in 1611, the Wycliffe Bible first uses this word because it's an English word. A Hebrew word or a more maybe accurate word would be like propitiation or those type of things. But the English word really defined for atonement is two really words. It's at and one-ment. At one with is really the literal translation. The purpose of this blood was to make at one with one another. The idea of atonement and how God atones things is God's way to bringing reconciliation and restoration to the problem of human sin and its efforts. One commentator said this, Animals become substitutes for humans in this section of Scripture. A life, an innocent life, for another life, the life of the guilty one, 
Animal sacrifice then was God's gracious provisions for humans. It's interesting how they're always saying gracious and merciful when there's death. But you have to realize in our salvation, because we have sin, we actually deserve death. We're saved by grace and God's mercy because if God didn't intervene or do anything, we would be damned. We would be judged. We would have to give our own account and that would separate us. We wouldn't be at one with God. We would be separated from God for all eternity because there has to be a price to pay. Sin, the simple definition, is the rebellion against God. We are born children of wrath, enemies of God, not one with the Lord. We are physically alive but spiritually dead in our sin, the Bible says, in our trespasses. So we need forgiveness. We have this problem as humanity. And the way Jesus is doing is so beautiful, it's so incredible, as he sets up this altar, God is showing us that we need Jesus and we need sacrifice to get to his presence. And the climax or the biggest off, uh, um, sort of offering there was was the guilt and, and sin offering, the sin and guilt offering in Leviticus chapter 4 through 6. Um, it gives a lot of details, three chapters. I'm not going to go into it, but I want to describe to you how a worshiper would worship with this altar at the time. The Israelites would go and see this courtyard and, and they'd be camped all around it and maybe they had their tent close or maybe it was far back, but they would come to the tabernacle and they would enter the gate hearing animals, smelling smells, And they would bring their own animal to this altar and to a priest. Now this animal would have to have uh, no flaws. Because it would need to be perfect in a sense. Valuable. It was a precious, important sacrifice. It was something that they could have made a living off of, do their thing. But they know there had to be of some value. And so they would bring the worshiper, would bring an animal to the priest. And the priest would inspect the animal at the altar. And the worshiper would then place their hand on the head of the animal. And this was significant because the worshiper would identify his sin as being placed on the animal. And now they they would pray. They would acknowledge their sin. They would turn to God, or what we would call repentance, was able to take place. And so they would place their hand on this animal, which was very valuable, very significant, perfect, And then they would slit the throat of the animal. And the animal's blood would be poured out. And the priest would have that bowl to capture that blood. And he would sprinkle this blood on the altar and put it on those four horns. Now those four horns had a practical significance because some of the animals that were sacrificed were small, depending on your income even. But others were really big, like bulls. And so when they put an animal on there, They would make sure that these horns, they wouldn't just jump up there. They would be placed in a certain way. That's why they had certain tools and different things like that. So the animal would bleed out. And the blood would not only be poured on the altar, but it would be poured on all of these four horns. Now, if you know Daniel, the prophet Daniel, and you know significance in Scripture, horns are a sign of power, significance. And this signified how God had the power over life and over death. That was the framework. Next, the dead animal would be cut up into pieces by a table close to the altar and would be placed on the altar to burn. And this 
over and over again in Leviticus and in Exodus, and as you see this offering taking place, there would be a great aroma going up to the Lord, and the text would always say, and it was pleasing to the Lord, this aroma. It pleased the Lord, this aroma. Leviticus says it over and over again, pleasing aroma unto the Lord. Because God would honor that and tell them, do that if you want things covered. As the animal was consumed with fire, you would hear skin burn. You would smell like a roast. You would have the smell of sort of a metallic smell from the blood. And you would be surrounded by all of these things going on. The whole process is a very sobering one. um, And it's supposed to be. Because God in this moment through this altar wanted to show humanity and his people how serious rebelling against him was. What we know is sin. Now we know the doctrine of sin. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God uh, is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. This whole process of sacrificing an animal was to teach us how serious sin is, but it was also to point us to Christ and the sacrifice He would make. You see, the Bible says that Jesus came to be our substitutionary atonement the propitiation for our sins. He came to shed His own blood for the forgiveness and redemption. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2 puts it this way when you think about altar and what was happening with these burnt offerings and all this stuff going on. Paul would tell the Ephesus church, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Jesus was our sacrifice on the cross to bear our sin, and it's only when we identify our guilt, reach out our hand, and say, Jesus, take away my sin. I repent. I turn to you. I give this offering. Lord, I need you to forgive, you to do the work. I need blood to be shed, but I am not worthy. I am not perfect. I need to enter the Father's presence. I need a sacrifice. Jesus willingly stepped in to atone for our sin. And this first picture comes on the scene of the very beginning of his ministry, even before he gets baptized. John the baptizer, or John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, verse 29, he would see Jesus and identify this way and proclamation of this beautiful truth. The text says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was, it was clear that God the Father was writing this and instructing Moses so that we would know the Messiah to come and how he would actually take away sin. Because remember, it's not just make the tabernacle, but how do you worship? How do you eradicate sin? How do you forgive? How do you go in the presence of God? God is giving all this instruction to them. So you see, even though the worshiper would make this offering, he would have to continually do this over and over again. Because an animal, the Bible says, didn't fully cover his sin. It was just a covering, a temporary thing. And the people knew it, and God declared it. So they would have to continually offer up sacrifices unto the Lord, animal after animal, sin after sin, going to God. But Hebrews tells us that Jesus' sacrifice was different on the cross because Jesus is greater than an animal. His blood is more precious. It happened once and once for all. 
in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, it's like our running commentary. It's like when I give you a book and be like, and the writer, the pastor of Hebrews says this, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it could never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers have once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why would you set up a system that was temporary and animals' blood would be shed over and over and over. Like, remember the whole high priest? He would go to the most holy place once a year and he would be scared like, okay, am I going to die? Am I pure enough? Like, why would this system happen? I thought God knows what he's doing. He does. Because he doesn't want you to worship a system or get to him through a system, but a person. And so rather than setting it up, he's telling you, there's a way to worship me. Here is the system and our systems are never good enough. You can't even fall back on religiosity or being religious and how you worship him to obtain righteousness. You need a savior. The perfect lamb of God will come. And this is why Hebrews 10 verse 10 says, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Because now we go to Jesus over and over again. Not an animal or a religious system, but he set it up in such a way where they could dwell with him in the moment but yet it would foreshadow and point to something to come that was even greater. The whole system or process was to point us to Jesus and the work that would be coming, which is better, so we, our trust would go to a person and the Spirit of God and not the system. We know that later on in the Jewish nation and the Israelites would have a problem with this because then they would not only build a tabernacle, the tabernacle would actually be constructed to a temple in the day of Solomon and they would actually idolize and worship the process and the gold and the, 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 really, uh, the religious part of things. So just as the worshiper would feel guilty and the weight of sin as they placed their hand on the animal's head and identified with it, because remember, this is a great value. This could provide food, money, finances for my family, but I sinned. I blew it. There was a penalty for that, so I'm going to place that on the animal's sin, and this innocent animal now will die because of me, because of who I am. That's what's happening here. But yet it's so important for us because we as followers of Jesus should see the seriousness and the weight of sin as well as we look to the cross and identify with Jesus as being our Lamb of God, placed on our Savior, we should say, man, I don't want to sin. It's serious. My God had to die for that. It would cause a sobering mindset in that worshiper back then, but yet in our lives, it should cause us to be sober-minded as well. Not wanting to sin. Now, I think what's really important as we look to Hebrew, or Leviticus chapter 4 is who was doing these offerings. Who is doing these offerings, I think, is sort of helpful for us to see that we all need Jesus and for him to save us of our sin. Leviticus chapter 4 describes four different types of people that would make this sin, uh, this sin and guilt offering. First, the priest. 
The priests, they, there were a lot of priests. Remember the Levites, the priests, they actually were carrying these linens and the coverings and the poles. And I mean, there was a whole tribe from uh, Aaron, the Levites, that were in charge of this stuff. And they did a lot of work to get God's presence with the people and do all this different stuff. But yet they had to make an offering. Leviticus 4.4 says, He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. This is significant because the priest, God's anointed servant at that time, needed to still make a sacrifice. Meaning he wasn't justified by the service he did for the Lord. He was still guilty and not perfect. Blood had to be shed for him. You see, no amount of service or duty that you can do for the Lord, even though it's God-honoring and anointed by God and worthy, can save you of your sin. Blood had to be shed. And so the priest, these ministers, would actually have to do this offering as well. Not their role or position would save them, but by God's grace and means of grace, they would be saved and spared. But then there was the whole congregation. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 13 through 21 talk about these people and section. And in verse 15 it says, And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. It's not just certain individuals that are guilty for sin, the Bible says, but communities, humankind. We are born into sin. All of mankind, the Bible says, is bound and wrapped up in sin, and it affects not just you, but a whole community. You know, when you sin, you're guilty, but your sin also usually has an effect on your family, on your church family's life, on community. It can wreck whole countries. Even though God had chosen the Israelites, and He loved the Israelites, they were still sinners, imperfect people. You know, God loves you and He loves the world. But we are still sinners, imperfect people. Blood must be shed. Blood must be shed. The third type of person were the leaders. It wasn't just the anointed, but also the civil leaders in the tribe, tribe uh, the hedge tribe. In, in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 22 through 26, I'm going to read just a few more verses to draw maybe one or two more points. It says, when a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of all the things that by the commands of the Lord his God ought not to be done. So basically, when you sin and it's unintentional, and you realize he realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has commanded is known to him, he shall bring his offering now a goat, a male without blemish, and shall lay his hand on the head of the goat, Kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offerings before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Now, I wrote, read this larger section for two points to sort of draw out here. The sin offering was for unintentional sins and intentional sins. It was for the sin where you were aware of. It was called a trespass. There's a line. You cross it. But then it was also for, did you notice, the unintentional sin of that leader. Like even when they didn't even know what was going on. You see, a lot of people in our day and age, they may say, well, I try my best 
Like, I'm a pretty good person. I haven't, like, sinned and, like, I'm not flat out rebelling against God. Like, I just don't know God. Like, come on. No one's perfect. Come on. The Bible says that, right? Romans 3, 9. No one's perfect, not in one. So, like, I'm, I'm not that bad. A lot of people may even say, well, like, I've tried my best. But here's the thing. The leaders were still guilty for their unintentional sin. I recently heard one person teaching on this and thinking through, and he's like, listen, when it comes to the law, if I'm speeding and I get pulled over and the officer writes me a ticket because I was speeding, but I was just doing my thing, man. I was looking at my phone. I was driving out to music. I was just doing my thing. I went five over, 10 over, like wasn't even paying attention. It was unintentional. I'm still guilty. You see, you don't even have to have the awareness that you are a sinner to be a sinner. You are still guilty. Blood had to be shed. It was for the unintentional sin and the intentional sin. And I want you to notice another thing about their offering, because it wasn't a bull. It said it was a male goat. There was a lesser price for this sin because of the position they had. They weren't the priests dealing with holy things. It wasn't a whole community it was just their individual sin. So rather than the value of a bull, which would be more value than a goat, just proportionally with meat-wise, with value-wise, there was a different price to be paid. We need as Christians to acknowledge that there is different sin and consequences for the sins that we commit. We're all sinners, but I'm just going to let you know. There's a difference here if you try to murder me or if you try to lie to me, there's different consequences for our sins. The Bible even acknowledges and says, listen, when it comes to sexual sin, you're not only sinning against God, but you're sinning against your body. There are sins that even can lead to death or disease and harm. There are degrees of sin. And oftentimes we say, well, awesome, because all these people do all these bad sins. But like, I'm, I'm okay because I only do these sins. no. There is the reality that all sin needs to be atoned for and needs to have blood shed. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, he has become guilty of all of it. You can have someone who's very kind, very nice, and just a flat-out kinder person than even a Christian. And sin is not harming their lives as much here on earth. But their internal significant problem between going between God and being right before God, they are still guilty. It doesn't matter if it's a white lie or you're stealing or having an affair or whatever it may be. This is why God gave the law of degrees and even punishment. And there is an important part of acknowledging and being like, yeah, that guy's pretty good. He does a lot of good stuff, but it doesn't save him. Blood has to be shed. You know, Hebrews 9.22 says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, or that word would be remission of sin. You see, the leaders were guilty. With their lesser weight sin, their responsibility, and even when they weren't even aware of their sin, they still had to pay a price. Lastly, there was the common people, or I wrote down in parentheses, everyone or everyone else. These are the four type of people. In Leviticus 27 through 35 of this chapter, verse 32 and 33 says, If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, 
this worshiper, he shall bring a female without blemish and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. This sin and guilt offering was for the common people to the leaders. It was for the whole community to the priest. They all had to pay a price for sin. This is showing the doctrine like Romans 3.23 where it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. doesn't mean that we all do terrible, horrible things. No, but God has given us laws and given us a standard of what glory is, and there is no one glorious or as glory as Him. So we are not holy. He is perfect, and we are not. And it doesn't matter your position. It doesn't matter if you have responsibility or a talented leader, or if you're just an everyday common person. We, they all had to give this offering, and yet we see the bronze altar here at the tabernacle that God made a way for them to flourish and to know Him and to deal with sin in a correct way. Just how God provided Jesus the means to forgive our sin. We know this verse, but in this context, isn't it beautiful how God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever will believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life? Where did these animals even come from? God. Just like all the bronze and the gold and the silver and the treasure and the great came from God. Do we participate in our salvation? Absolutely. Is there faith? Absolutely. But who does the work? Or you could even say the heavy lifting. It's all God. God gave His Son so that we can repent and turn to Him and be, have access to Him. A worshiper would bring the lamb and place it on the altar and the Bible says it was pleasing to the Lord. It was pleasing to the Lord. We must identify with Jesus and His sacrifice, the shedding of His blood on the cross in order to be before God and His presence. Hebrews 9, 13-15 says this, For if the blood of goats and bulls and sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through eternal Spirit offer Himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serving the living God. Therefore, because of this, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that these who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Jesus is our great mediator. The Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man. It's Christ Jesus. The mediator, He's the one that our go-to to get to God. If you have a problem, you get a mediator to justify the arguments. What do you go to the mediator to get to the other person? How do we get to God the Father? It's only through Jesus. He's our great mediator. Just as people went to the bronze altar to be forgiven, so must we go to Jesus to be forgiven. And he declares he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. But everyone is a sinner and has to deal with sin because it is an offense to God. So the Bible says if you do not let Jesus deal with your sin, then you are condemned yourself because now you will have to pay the price of sin. And this is where we get the idea of wrath, judgment, and hell. There is a heaven, but there is a hell. And without Jesus and his sacrifice, you are not right with God. And the weight and the death and the shedding of blood is on you. 
For, a, for Hebrews 9 also says, it's appointed for man to die once and then what? Be judged. But Jesus is the one that's going to have all the authority and judge the living and the dead. So if you're in him and he's paid that for you, he welcomes you to enter in. But yet, if you don't know Jesus, there is great problem. And this is fair. This is just. Because we are born into sin. Jesus didn't have to come, but out of his love and out of his mercy, he saved and went to the cross to shed his own blood. I love what Warren Wiersbe says. He says, The way into the presence of God began at the bronze altar where innocent victims died for guilty sinners. In short, the brazen altar takes us immediately to Calvary where the Son of God died for the sins of the world. In closing, I want to just point out that there was more than just the sin and guilt offering. There were three other offerings that I think are important to look at real quick. In Leviticus chapter 1, remember I said how to go in chapter 1 through 7? In chapter 1, there's this burnt offering. Each morning, priests would, would go and give a burnt offering, an animal, and sacrifice it to the Lord where the animal was completely consumed. You see, in the sin and guilt offering, there was, there was meat, there was, there was different stuff, and they would, they would give proportions. But in the burnt offering, it was one of complete consumption. And this sacrifice represented complete dedication and surrender to the Lord as none of the meat was taken to eat. They would say, this all belongs to God. He's worth this much. And this is a beautiful picture of how we can surrender and dedicate our lives to Jesus daily, as Romans 12.1 says, giving our lives as a daily sacrifice to the Lord and dedication, saying, God, I'm going I'm to come to you, Jesus, and offer my life, and I want you to consume me and, and have your way in me. And the Bible says that God is pleased by our surrender, our life and obedience. We are now the royal priesthood, and as royal priests, we can offer our lives unto him as a sweet fragrance and aroma to the Lord. There was also the grain offering, also known as the meal offering in Leviticus chapter 2. This offering was given in thankfulness. People would bring fine flour, unleavened cakes, roasted grain to the priest to just show their thankfulness to God. God, you're just so awesome. Just want to bless you today. And the priest would burn some of this flour, this bread, these cakes, but then they would partake in the rest. There usually wasn't a big ceremony for this offering, but it had a great and practical significance because it provided a bread for the, the table and it provided um, cakes and, and bread and those type of things for the priest to enable the work of the tabernacle to keep going. I was thinking, this is a hard one to think about. But I thought in the New Testament, so too to us, because as we bring our sacrifice of praise, Hebrews 13 tells us, or our financial giving as a sacrifice, like 2 Corinthians chapter 9 talks about, or maybe even our attitude of thanksgiving as a sacrifice, where Paul commands us to rejoice. Again, I say rejoice in Philippians 4.4. 4. As we bring our praise, our giving, our thankfulness, God uses that and advances his kingdom. He blesses people's lives. So many people may not see these things because these are eternal things of the heart. When we give, we give it privately. There's not a big ceremony. When you have a good attitude and you're a thankful person, you're rejoicing, well, what's that a condition? That's an inward thing. Even when we praise, God knows the heart of the 
the sacrifice on our lips. This is not a big ceremony where people could see, but doesn't the Lord, doesn't he use a believer's life and the attitude of joy and praise to have significant impact in his community and the world around him? Doesn't he use our financial giving and contribution of thanks to, as we praise giving him by faith to use those funds to bless the priests and the work of the kingdom of God and to support missions and things in his kingdom all around the world? Or just simply using our voice to, to be able to share the gospel, to praise him and to bless people? It's a really cool, significant thing when you start bringing your money and your offering to Jesus bringing your heart and your attitude to Jesus, bringing your voice to Jesus, and he uses these things. Lastly, there was the fellowship offering, also known as the peace offering. This is the last part of Leviticus 2 and chapter 7 of Leviticus. Of course, you're all going to study and read that this week. This offering symbolized fellowship and peace with God through shed blood. One commentator said, after some of the meat was ceremonially waved and given to the priest, worshipers and their guests, um, well, they would share in a feast as a meal with God. And I think this is important for us as believers to understand the difference between these two because this is an important part of our faith as well. You see, it wasn't just we had an offering to save us from our guilt and our sin, but there was an offering that showed we were saved to God and for fellowship. We weren't just saved by the power of God, but we also have a, the purpose of God in our lives to enjoy His presence. And so when they would do this offering, they would save some meat for the worshiper and say, hey, celebrate with your friends and family. Enjoy God's presence. Eat a meal with him and your family and laugh. You haven't just been forgiven and saved by the power of God, but also may the presence of God be with you and may you enjoy his fellowship through a meal and may you enjoy the gifts and grace that he's given you through family. I believe God was prompting us all of this symbolism in this simple text as he's telling Moses in Exodus 27, Build a bronze altar. And do it this way, with these tools, for this reason, and do this, and do that. Did they really understand all of it? No, not, not all of it. But they were told to obey. Just like we may not know all of the commands of the Lord, but we're told to obey. So Jesus was about to be sacrificed for our sins and shed his blood. And what did Jesus do? He instituted communion for us to remember the work of the cross, of the altar. He told his disciples that when they gather together to remember the work he's done, the forgiveness and what it means that now we can have fellowship with God. So these are why these elements even in our worship service are important, like singing, taking communion, partaking in that. I wrote this down. Let us offer our lives as a living sacrifice again. Let us thank God and let us sing praises. Let us stand and worship and give financial offerings as a contribution and worship and thankfulness to God. And let us eat a meal together and enjoy the peace of God that we have and the fellowship that we have in and through Christ. Let us now go to the altar. Let us go once again to Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for the beauty of everything that you're doing in our hearts. And as we studied, and it's a lot, Lord, we just pray as we would 
have peace in our soul and rest, that we would see your beauty even more. Your blood was shed for us. We want to respond to that. We want to thank you for that. Lord, we want to take time to just look at you and include you in our lives now. We thank you, Jesus, for allowing us to be before God's presence, the Father. We thank you for making that sacrifice. We want to remember that. We want to partake in thanking you for shedding your own blood for us, for having your body beaten. And we just want to rejoice. And so, Lord, for those listening online or even in the room, I pray, God, that they would repent. They would turn to you. For there is no condemnation in you, Jesus. But yet, if we don't turn to you, we are condemned. And the Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. And so you can cry out to God and you can ask him to forgive your sin. You can take up the Lamb of God, the perfect, beautiful gift that God has given us through his son, salvation made a way through the cross of Christ, and you can identify with Jesus, trust in him, reach out your hand to him, and he will forgive you of your sin and give you life and purpose and forgiveness and fellowship. God, we thank you for this means of salvation, that it's all you. We just need to receive and respond. And so let us do so now as we respond by communion saying, Jesus, we believe you not only died and rose again, but you are coming back again. And we thank you for your blood and the wisdom that you have in doing these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hi, this is Pastor Daniel Williams at Redemption Church in Delray Beach. Thank you so much for listening to that message. We pray it was an encouragement. It was a blessing to you as we love to pursue and to proclaim Jesus together. And so no matter what you're listening, whether it be YouTube or our podcast, you can go to more resources at redemptiondb.com and even partner with us in ministry to pursue and to proclaim Jesus. God bless you. And thank you so much for listening.